This is Better Off Balanced, a mental health podcast from WGN-TV in Chicago. I'm Ana Belaval. Our mental health is so important to our everyday lives, but that doesn't mean everyone has access to the help they need. That's especially the case when it comes to the Latino community. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Patricia Aguado. She is a social worker and assistant professor at Northeastern Illinois University. She also serves on the board of Somos Loud, an organization dedicated to highlighting the importance of mental health within the Latinx community. We talked about how Latinos can overcome the stigmas of getting help when they need it, how a culturally relatable therapist is so valuable, and why that does not mean that it's just speaking Spanish. And that you do not have to be Latino or Latina to get something out of this information. A little heads up here. You may hear some noise in the background at times from Dr. Aguado's dog, Milo Corona. Milo found it to be a good time for a nap, but hopefully you will not feel the same way. Dr. Aguado, welcome to Better Off Balance. It's such an honor to have you join me today with this topic that is so near and dear to my heart. Thank you deeply for inviting me. I too think this is a topic that is incredibly, incredibly important. And I so appreciate that you all here on this podcast are elevating it and giving it space and time to speak about. Absolutely. I have uh, a rare but thankfully blessed history with therapy and my family because I come from a Puerto Rican family born and raised on the island that believed in therapy. At 13, I told my mother I needed to go to therapy because I had separation anxiety and I, I wanted to do all these things with my life. And I knew that that would affect me. And my mom and dad have been to therapy and they said, absolutely. And I have the same attitude with my kids where I saw the stigma was when I would tell my Latino friends, oh no, I gotta go because I have my therapy appointment. And they're like, you go to therapy, but why? You seem so normal. <laughs> and I'm like, that's because I go to therapy. Hello. Yes. And yes. so, but I know that is not the norm. What is getting in the way of Latinos and access to therapy? Is it lack of resources or is it the taboo or stigma of going to therapy? I think it's uh, both and some other things, right? I, I really appreciate you starting off with that story because I think it highlights the ways in which we can normalize um, mental health treatment issues. And that is by talking about them, by acknowledging that it is okay to seek out when we need support. And I think to your point, it really does begin in our families of origin. And if we have a infrastructure that supports it, then we then are more likely both to identify when, not, when we're not feeling well and also to feel empowered enough to seek out treatment. And so some of the barriers I think um, that you speak to are access for sure. There are not enough um, linguistically competent, culturally nuanced, culturally informed uh, treatment providers for the Latino community. And um, there is a stigma. Uh, there continues to be a stigma related to accessing care and treatment and what it means to maybe need support outside of the family, right? Where, where, and, and I want to start and frame this conversation first and foremost by 
stating that as Latinos, we are not a monolith, Ana, right? You, no. were, you were raised in Puerto Rico. Some of us are raised in the, in, in, uh, the U.S. Mainland. Proper. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, some of us are, are first-gen, second-gen immigrants, mm-hmm. um, the gamut, right? Mm-hmm. And I think even here locally in Chicago, being uh, from the south side might yeah. be a little different and nuanced than being on the, from the north side. So I do want to sort of emphasize that there's not sort of a cookie-cutter um, prescription for how to address and treat Latinos as a whole. I mean, I think there are generalities that we'll speak to today, but certainly um, a Mexicano is different from a Puerto Rican who's different from a Nicaraguense who's different from a Colombiana. Colombiano, right? So there's there's these little nuances that we need to really be open to learning about, uh, to tuning into, to try to like fully understand contextually what people are experiencing and what some of those barriers are to mental health. One, I think two, one of the other ways that I want to frame this conversation is also specific to sort of the health disparities that are driven by social and economic inequities, right? right? And for the Latino community specifically, longstanding um, structural and systemic inequity and discrimination, right? And racism, let's name it, have resulted in high rates of poverty, um, educational disadvantages, uh, community divestment, economic disadvantages, all sort of like systems and infrastructures that then have created um, our community or placed them in a more vulnerable position, thereby perhaps also making them more vulnerable to mental health concerns. We have some numbers here. Approximately 34% of Hispanic Latinx adults with mental illness receive treatment each year compared to the U.S. average of 45%. Talk about those disparities when it comes to access and quality of treatment. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. I was, I was, I think it's important to highlight that Latinos as a whole may not be experiencing more, more or less distress, right, than their counterparts. Um, that we have like similar susceptibility to mental illness. Sort of where we sort of drop off and where we see the inequity a little bit more is in the access to treatment and in the quality of treatment we receive, right? So you just mentioned that we are less likely to sort of engage in treatment and likely engage in quality treatment, and so. This sort of inequity, what it does is it puts us at higher risk for more severe and persistent forms of mental health issues. Because you let it go longer. You let it go longer. It's like the layers build and build. But when you talk about accessibility, is it because they go to the emergency room because they're undocumented and they don't have a primary care physician that may say, oh, you're depressed, or they just don't go to the doctor, or they don't have the good insurance that will cover it? Where Where are we seeing those, or does it run the gamut. I think it runs a gamut. I think it's layered. And I think it's exactly what you said, plus some stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's cost. Um, so, you know, it, it, for our communities who are struggling, who, again, this is a generalization. Um, many are not struggling, but many are. Many are struggling to meet their basic needs. And so for me, paying my rent and buying food for my family is going to be prioritized yeah. over perhaps um, going and seeking out mental health treatment. So costs, right? Mm-hmm. Being um, uninsured or underinsured mm-hmm. um, related to cost is a barrier. Not knowing um, where you can access services, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes you know something's not quite with you right with you, but you don't know where to go or where to seek help. To your point, um, many of our 
community members don't have primary care providers mm-hmm. and they seek out care when they just can't function anymore. Right. right? It's, it's so, so it becomes almost like reactionary crisis driven mental health treatment where we're going into ERs, or even if we do have a primary care provider going to our doctors. And even sometimes it's the misdiagnosis because I might go into the ER or I might see my primary care provider. And if they sort of don't understand the cultural nuances of where I'm coming from, if I say my heart is hurting me, I'm having these awful stomach pains, my headache um, is killing me. Uh, yeah, of course, you're going to get a physical workup. And when right. they find that nothing sort of organically physical is going on with you, they're going to say you're fine. But really what I am needing support in is the fact that I am super anxious right now, right? Like I'm suffering from anxiety or I am suffering from depression. And um, because of the lack of knowledge sometimes among providers, um, I'm, I'm I may not be diagnosed or I may be misdiagnosed. Plus, right? it doesn't help if then you're feeling that way and you express it to your family and in your family, they say, suck it up and get keep going. Or in this family, we don't have those issues or you're just being lazy or so, so, or, or, oh my God, nosotros no podemos tener un hijo loco. <laughs> You're, you're tapping into the taboos that are like, you know, interrelated with that stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, in our families, I want to say first and foremost that this notion of familismo, uh, of connected families, of being interconnected in the Latino community is sort of like one of the, un- it's not unique to us, um, but it's one of the, like the richest points yes. of strength in our community, mm-hmm. right? It is an asset. Yep. However, mm-hmm. as much as it is an asset, and at least it wasn't yours, right? You had a family, you had family that said, Anna, we really want to support you. You're yeah. not feeling well. Let's get you some help. Yeah. In other families, right, this notion of we got to keep our dirty laundry in the house, right? right? We, we, it's like concerns about like privacy. Um, we don't want to be judged by our community, by our family. We need to sort of like keep it together and make it seem as though we are okay. Problems don't leave our family. We deal with stuff internally or these notions of um, not quite understanding what it means to suffer from mental health distress. And so quickly um, going to uh, sort of like the extremes of my kid's not crazy. You're not Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. Just suck it up, get better. I recently started seeing a woman who, um, have never been in treatment before, gave a birth during the pandemic. And it's just really struggling with being a new mom and having been isolated for so long. And she finally reached out for treatment, talked to her family. She's a Latina. And her mom said, well, why do you need that? You're fine. Right. Like in my day, we had five and six kids and we didn't complain. Yeah. Mine but told me that. the same thing. <laughs> when right. I, when I, I, I had, you're not strong enough. And right? she, you're believes not strong in, enough. she believes in therapy, but she's like, I didn't feel that way. I said, excuse me. You ran after the overnight nurse crying because she was leaving after a month and you paid her for an extra month. So I think someone had the postpartum think- blues. <laughs> Correct. Correct. Selective memory yep. too. Mm-hmm. So, so our families can be both sources of strength, um, but they can also be perhaps uh, barriers to um, being vulnerable, uh, speaking our truth, and then further engaging and accessing the care that we need. Dr. Aguado, um, I see, I have a 14 year old and I see that during the pandemic, her age group and younger, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, 
have suffered a lot, are having anxiety, are having depression. There are rates of suicides that are skyrocketing in that group. And my husband, my my daughter is half Puerto Rican, um, and so in the Latino community, are there groups that are struggling more with mental health? Uh, I would say you tapped right into it. It is okay. uh, our adolescents, our children in our adolescents, mm -hmm. our elders as well, right? Mm -hmm. They were extremely socially isolated uh, throughout the pandemic. Um, but we have seen a rise in anxiety and depression, suicide ideation and suicide period um, among our adolescent, mm -hmm. among our adolescent Latinos. Um, I think we are in crisis mode right now, yeah. right? We are really needing to do something quickly and we are needed to, we are needing to be, we're needing to do something immediately, but also needing to be thoughtful about how to address the specific concerns of our Latino young people, right? So not only did they experience um, sort of the social isolation of, of, you know, not being able to engage with friends, um, which is fundamental, right? At, at these sort of like de developmental stages, you need to be with and among your peer groups in order to like fully develop and enjoy life. Um, Latinos, because COVID has disproportionately impacted um, rates of hospitalization, loss of income, um, rates of illness, and ultimately death that our Latino children in particular are suffering from extreme loss, yes. right? Loss across the gamut. And we need to sort of like address this, this, loss in a way that is inclusive, not just of sort of like this, the social isolation that happened as a result of COVID, but these more extreme ways in which this sort of trickle down impact of COVID has impacted their activities of daily living, right? right. So if parents are losing jobs, um, they may have food insecurity. Mm -hmm. They may have housing insecurity. If um, we live in multi-generational households mm -hmm. as well, oftentimes, right? So uh, if I'm constantly worried about my abuelita getting sick or if I have it like on the extreme end experienced the loss and death of a parent or uh, an aunt that was incredibly important to me or you know I don't know a sibling what like what is the long-term impact of that we have yet to see it right yeah. we are right now in acute mode and the long-term impact of um what this will do to us and what it's going to do to our young people, we, we, we have yet to see. Are parents of that generation a little more open-minded about finding help for the kids, maybe not for themselves, but for your children, you'll do anything? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think particularly in, in this, in this moment where, um, you know, I think what the pandemic in one way has exposed is the need the infrastructure, right, that sort of positions certain communities, in this case, Latino communities, um, to disproportionate rates of mental illness. So it's highlighted the need. Um, and I think what's happening right now is there's a heavy push, particularly within the school systems, mm -hmm. to address some of these mental health concerns. And I think when we can couple it with um, school curriculum, right, when we can talk about it openly in schools, then as uh, parents, as family members, we're more likely to sort of understand it and support it as yeah. something that our children need, right? right. Versus, um, 
you know, a neighbor telling you, you know, your kid doesn't, doesn't like something's off with your kid mm -hmm. or versus a kid, you know, your child coming and telling you like, I feel sad. I feel depressed. Right. I, I think it's contextual. Right. Mm -hmm. And and when it's coupled within sort of like a school setting and teachers and community support, then we're more likely to say one, I'm not alone. Right. Right. And there, there is a need to help support my child because what, what it does is it impacts their education and what Latino parent independent of their own educational background or economic status does not want their kid to do well in right. school. You tell me. Right. right? No, absolutely. So if we can link it to these things, then folks are more inclined or parents are more inclined to say, yes, yes, I want my child to engage in support because, right, I want them to do well in school. If right. nothing else, I want them to do well in school. Right. But if mom is not well, no one is well. How do you convince that generation that is older that this is not, not, no es un capricho, it's a need. You know, it's not, uh, oh, a fad. Oh, everybody in this country goes to therapy because everybody here is nervioso and can't handle it. You know, how do you convince that generation that, yeah, your stomachache and your hair falling or your sleepless nights are not because of uh, physical illness, it's emotional and it can be solved or if not treated because that's the other thing you don't the, when you have mental health issues you don't solve them you work with them you get a toolkit so that's another thing that may be a problem but people go bueno pero how long am i going to have to do this and it's never solved i still get a panic attack so so talk to me about that Thank you for pointing that out too. I think there's a misnomer that if I just take a pastita, I'm going to get better yeah. and, and my mental health um, issues will go away. And for some of us, our mental health issues are lifelong. They just sort of like, you know, they become a pattern where you understand what the triggers are and how to manage and how to cope, but they may not necessarily ever go away first and foremost. Some of it is situational in which, you know, I might have a reaction to something significant in my life right. um, that positions me in a state of distress and I'll get over it. But for the most part, you know, we might be struggling with mental health issues lifelong. Um, and to your point, how do you convince um, folks of perhaps a different generation? Um, you know, if I had a recipe for that. We I wouldn't be having this conversation. We wouldn't be having this conversation. I think first and foremost, we start with education. We start yeah. with doing things like this podcast, where mm -hmm. you are elevating this conversation, where you are talking about it, where you are demystifying what it means to not be okay, that it doesn't have to be something um, extreme, that it can just be that I just need a little support. I just need someone outside of my family, outside of my yeah. friends to talk to. Um, if we can normalize that, then we start uh, beginning to break down some of those barriers. If we remove language barriers, right? How is it that we're going to fully educate and connect with families and endear them to the idea of potentially engaging in support services when we can't even communicate, right? Yeah. Um, that's not something that, that can be done through um, a translator. No. Um, I think, you know, collaborating with communities, uh, community members, collaborating with primary care physicians, because mm -hmm. what we know is that when folks are not feeling well from a mental health perspective, they are more likely to go seek out the support of a, of a, a, a an MD, a primary care provider, rather than a mental health provider. So how can we work collaboratively right. with, with um, community-based organizations and primary care providers so that they can... Um, um, identify, right, these symptoms among our community. And in our community, too, um, MDs uh, hold and wield a lot of, of, of 
like reverence, right? Yes. So, so if the doctor tells me that yes. I need to do this, then I am more likely to do it. Right. Uh, so we, we got it. We got to include them. We also have to, um, you know, include our families in treatment. We look at mental health as an individual thing, but we don't live and operate as Latinos really individually. We operate as a collective. And if we can include the family members or the people that are around us that can provide us support with, with, within our sort of like treatment, then we are one more likely to be open to it. And we're more likely to get better. You don't think um, that that would, <laughs> that would work against it because you'd be afraid that your mom is going to be like me, go to the psychologist with you. What is your problem or feel like oh great now i'm gonna hear how i screwed you up yes 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 for sure for sure on the extreme end mm -hmm. but maybe just um you know what i think about when i say that is how can i get additional forms of information from the person in, uh, from the person who's seeing me Right. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I triangulate information to get a fuller context of the environment in which they live, the mm -hmm. schools in which they are situated? How can I include sort of like the schools to understand how kids are doing academically um, or how they were doing academically before and how things have shifted to help better inform what's going on and how to help better inform a treatment mm -hmm. plan? Um, and then, you know, like also back to something you said earlier, um, promoting this idea that physical and mental health are intertwined, that mm -hmm. they are intertwined, that if you are not doing well from a physical standpoint, then your mental health is impact and vis-a-vis -vis and vice versa, right? So that the, from a holistic perspective, in order to really be healthy, we need to attend to sort of all of these aspects of our humanity. And I think when we approach, um, the work like that, that people may be a little more inclined, people that might have been historically resistant may be a little more inclined to say, mm, I don't quite believe in it, but I'll try it, mm -hmm. right? I'll try it. I'll right. see how it goes. Yeah. Um, and certainly showing compassion. Like, let's show compassion to people that are struggling with mental health conditions. Let's show compassion to people who are struggling with addiction. These are illnesses, yeah. right? They're not um, indictments on a person's ability to, you know, survive or be strong. Um, they are illnesses that are treatable that require humanity and compassion and empathy or your um, or an indictment of your parental skills because that's another question you know where where latino parents will be like what are they going to say about what did i do wrong is this my fault you know Lo que dirán. What Lo is que that? Dirán. How do you mm -hmm. translate that into into English? That's a that's like I yeah. feel like I hear that quite often. Que dirán? Que mm -hmm. dirán de mí? Que dirán? What, what what are they going to say? How does this reflect on me as a mm -hmm. parent? Right? I have failed as a parent if my kid is not okay. And clearly, that is sort of messaging that we need to shift the narrative about. And also, that reminds me of. Um, being aware of, of language that we use, of terminology that we use. Sometimes we're quick to say, you know, that person's just crazy. Right. They're, they're psychotic. Están yeah. locos. If I'm not feeling well and I'm, I'm struggling with anxiety and someone says, you know, uses that terminology in, in front of me, I'm just likely to sort of go internal, right? I'm less likely to share out what I'm feeling because I don't feel safe. I don't feel that it's an environment that's going to understand me. And I will more likely than not um, 
suffer in silence, mm -hmm. right? So I think even being cognizant about language that we use that can be negatively perceived and internalized in a negative way. If it's hard to find a therapist right now, because there's they're in high demand, Ooh. it is harder to find a Latino therapist, and it is harder, even harder, to find a bilingual one. I have the rarity that I've been with my therapist for 24 years. He's Argentinian and our therapists are in, our therapies are in Spanish. My husband says that my therapy takes longer because I do it in Spanish because we talk so much. <laughs> Se necesitan más palabras for a therapy that's in Spanish. That's likely true. Exactly. So, but that's a rarity. And I've, I've, I have found it trying to find therapy for my children. Children's therapists are very, they're overbooked. And then for adults, and then to find a Latino, uh, and then to find someone who speaks Spanish is even harder. And and so what's a solution to that? And how can also we realize that it is important that someone understands our cultural nuances, of course, and where we're coming from culturally, but that that shouldn't stop us from get treatment either. I don't want to put out there that, okay, then you're going to have to deal with it on your own or read self-help books in Spanish because there's no access for you. Just find an alternative because we're talking to a community that has all sorts of levels from all sorts of generations. So some people would like therapy in Spanglish or just want a Latino therapist because they'll get how it is to grow up bicultural, you know? I have a very small private practice and I am booked um, <laughs> yeah. with, with, with Latinos, yeah. right? Who, who sought out someone who, who, um, you know, is, is, is at least connected to them loosely culturally mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. knowing much about me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that opens many doors in and of itself, but being authentically you, I think sometimes, you know, like we're all raised differently, but there's something about us that we're like vocal, we're loud, we laugh, right. We're joyful. I think to bring that to the therapeutic experience is important because what you're showing is your authentic self right? And it feels familiar oftentimes to people. And if you can show that, then they are more likely to feel as though um, they can connect with you, right? Because they're like, oh, this woman is being real. She reminds me of maybe the tia that I yeah. know, or the cousin that I know, or the friend from high school, right? That there's something about this that feels familiar and feels safe and feels like I can trust her. So bringing sort of that authenticity of who you are, sometimes we try, try to be super professional yes. and I got to put on, you know, like yeah. my game face on and that sort of inhibits the relationship building that is at the foundation of any therapeutic experience right because if you don't trust the person that you're talking to you're not going to share the intimacies of what's happening with you and you're likely not going to come back i really think the onus uh of responsibility in that case falls on those specific treatment providers to uh, reach out to community, to be rooted in the community mm -hmm. so that people come to understand that they are like allies. They are people that perhaps don't look like me, perhaps don't have my same background, but that they have a willingness and a desire to understand and listen and to help support me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. You don't have to have the same background, so to speak, mm -hmm. or the same experiences in order to help support people. But I I do think that the onus of responsibility in that case falls on the treatment providers to get out into the communities to sort of develop relationships and let them know that they are available and willing. I think the other question that you ask about what to do relative to the limited pool, uh, I think that's it's, it's multi-leveled, right? Mm -hmm. I think that we need to have 
first and foremost, mental health coverage for all. Like what if like in a fantasy world, we had mental health coverage for all where we even eliminate the need uh, to, to be documented, right? That il eliminating immigration status as an eligibility requirement for like publicly funded mental health treatment. How beautiful would that be? So that we approach this not from a reactive perspective, but more from a preventative perspective, mm -hmm. right? One. So it's it's really um, a top-down thing where we need to uh, be more intentional about pushing um, legislation, pushing like federal government, local to... Um, elevate this as an important concern and not just through words, but through dollars, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. like, how do we, you know, like intentionally provide more dollars so that we can increase the treatment provider tool or pool rather? I think that we need to expand the pipeline of practitioners, yeah. right? Like the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are different opportunities in which, again, we can be very intentional about creating funding for um, undergraduates and graduates to sort of like get into the mental health counseling workforce, be it as clinical social workers, be it as counselors, be it mm -hmm. as psychologists, right? So that we increase opportunity and incentives for them to practice in areas of highest need, right? To go back. There's this also thing that happens yeah. once we get like Latinos get that some Latinos, they get educated mm -hmm. and they're like, I'm out, I'm leaving my community. <laughs> yeah. I'm done. But let's shift that narrative. Yeah. You went out, got educated. Now come back to your community right. and share all of that wealth of knowledge and resources that you have to help elevate and support your community. I found it really interesting that you were saying that non-Latino uh, professionals that are in this field should go to those communities. If they have interest in working they sh with these communities that are marginalized or have lack of access, that they should go out there and let them know that their services are available. Uh, what would you tell them? How would you prep them to take care of that community if they don't know? Maybe some did missionary work or did a residency somewhere or did an exchange here in, I don't know, Guatemala and loved it and understand the culture. But what would you tell them? I would say that you have a wealth of skill or knowledge, a baseline toolkit that you have developed through your education, through your uh, practice experience. One, so you go in confidently knowing that you know something about something, right? But you also need to go into communities knowing that you also don't know a lot and you need to humble yourself mm -hmm. to the experience of connecting with folks and letting them guide you and teach you. Right. I think there's an arrogance sometimes, even with missionary work, like I'm going to go out into the communities and help these poor people. They right. need me. They need right. me to, de you know, like develop toilets or whatever it is that people go and do. Um, and that's not really approaching the work from a collaborative perspective. Right. It's understanding what you bring to the table and then also understanding that a community and individual ultimately knows what they need. Um, and it's up to you to figure out how to develop a relationship and then also how to learn from the richness that our community can share with you, yeah. right? Because we are a resilient people. We mm -hmm. have experienced lots of trauma, 
pre-pandemic and certainly since the pandemic, and we still um, survive and thrive. And there is something there that needs to be applauded and elevated. And what can folks learn from that, right? So how do we not only look to uh, um, supporting sort of uh, the needs of people, but how do we also elevate their assets and bring that to the sort of treatment table so that we have a more well-rounded perspective of who's in front of us. So letting them guide us, I would say. Let's talk about options for treatment, especially if you are uninsured um, or underinsured. Limited. Yeah. <laughs> Limited in a nutshell. I would say that folks that um, are uninsured or underinsured um, or even undocumented, right? Because that's mm-hmm. even a sort of a narrower pool. Um, perhaps looking into community clinics, right? So clinics that are our community-based organizations that are situated in the neighborhoods in which people live, local social service agencies. If um, they are young people at a university seeking out their counseling services, every university has counseling services, services in schools and elementary schools, right? And also expanding the funding there so that we not only educate, but that we can treat our students right? So treatment options within the schools, they have lots of referral sources, um, hospitals, right? We know that that's sort of like a reactive option, but in the case of um, not having many options, you do have that. They're not going to turn you away. Um, There are support groups in the community that I think Mm -hmm. can function in a way that can very much um, help heal folks when they are in deepest need, right? Being with and among other people that might be experiencing what you are experiencing, be it in a formal social service organization or even sort of in church settings, sometimes this happens. Um, And then seeking out clinics and resources that care for members of the community that are Latino, specifically Latino-based, yeah. right? That that are more likely, not always, but more likely to provide services regardless of legal status. So, you know, like some big organizations in Chicago that come to mind are like Alivio, yeah. right? Erie, mm-hmm. Esperanza. Those are all sort of organizations that are situated in the communities in which they are providing services. They have engendered the trust of the community members and they are providing services free or low cost so that it's accessible. For those people that are listening and have family members that they are worried about, how should they approach them? What should be the the way and the words, because you say you're saying that words matter. What should be the words used to suggest therapy to alert them to this situation so that it doesn't get worse and they seek treatment? I think first and foremost, um, perhaps to model for yourself what it means to not be okay. So to perhaps share out that you have experienced um, episodes of sadness, you have experienced episodes of distress or anxiety, Um, one, right? Because if we can model it to the people in our lives, particularly our our children, the youth, then they are less likely to uh, feel as though they can't talk about it. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, very simply put, you just sort of like need to I won't say call it out. That feels a little aggressive, right. but you just need to call it and yeah. say, Mija, 
mijo or sister or friend, I've noticed a change in your behavior. You seem to be like maybe a little more angry lately, or I've seen your grades slipping, or you haven't been hanging out with your friends. Like, I really think that um, you could benefit from talking to someone or what can I do to help you, right? I want you to know that you are not alone, that no matter what you tell me, that I will still love you and support you, right? This notion that my love for you is unconditional mm -hmm. and I don't just love you when things are great or when you're getting straight A's. I love you when you're not doing well, right? right? And I am here for you. Um, I think that foundational, um, that, that is a foundation can really set the tone for, for particularly young people to say, yeah. I'm not okay, right? I'm not okay right now. And I don't even know what I need, but I just, I'm not okay. Right. Why should non-Latinos care about this lack of access and um, preconceived notion among our community when it comes to seeking therapy? It's our humanity, right? That this notion... Um, of, I have a, a friend who is African. She's specifically Ethiopian, and she um, talks about Ubuntu, right? And it's something that really resonates with me. And it's just this notion uh, related to humanity. And translated, it, it sort of means that I am because we are, mm -hmm. right? So this notion of humanity towards others. Um, we operate in silos, we operate individualistically, but we're not really. And so if we cared more about the well-being of people in my community, of um, just society in general, knowing that, you know, it is a social justice issue, is a, a, an issue related to humanity, that we are just we're rooted with each other, right? And it's 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 sort of this notion of if my mental health is not good, my physical health is not good. If my neighbor's not okay, then then I'm technically not okay. And how do how do we like build bridges to help support one another? Many of the young people that you know, as a consequence of mental health, end up getting incarcerated instead of receiving treatment. And so we really sort of also need to look at this. Um, if, through a wider lens to understand how it is that the lack of mental health resources um, sort of impacts uh, communities differently, one, and sort of um, at, it, at its extremes really can alter the lives in a really negative way of mm -hmm. many Latino people, especially, especially our young people. What is Somos Loud? I know you're on the board of that organization. Somos Loud, we are a Chicago chapter, it's a national org that is working to fight um, HIV and AIDS in the Latino, Latinx community. I want to be inclusive. I think, you know, folks identify in different ways with their Latinidad um, and supports sort of other sort of critical health issues. But we try to employ marking initiatives that are um, culturally sensitive and relevant and effective at encouraging um, positive behavioral change in Latino communities throughout the U.S. and Chicago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our work connects um, Latino subpopulations like youth, LGBTQ+, women, undocumented, and others um, to HIV prevention and um, to medical care, right, to access medical care. Dr. Aguado, lastly, what would you like to say to our community that may be listening today about seeking help for themselves or for others that they don't don't see that they're acting like they usually do? There's this sort of like saying uh, that I want to implore, um, and that is that it is okay to not be okay, 
right? Simply put, it is okay to not be okay. We can ask for help um, and that we just need to normalize going to, to therapy or seeking other forms of emotional support um, and knowing that mental health is part of our overall health. So it is okay to not be okay. I love that. And I think we should also add that it's not an easy process. It's going to take a few weeks. It's not a cure-all. And um, that if the first therapist is not compatible with you, find another one. Don't give up on yourself. Absolutely. And in fact, that is something that I say when I first start engaging uh, with folks in my practice is that, you know, sometimes people just don't connect and that is okay right? Give this one or two or three sessions a chance. But if you feel as though there's something, uh, there's something that's inhibiting you uh, from connecting uh, or you don't feel comfortable with me, that is okay. That You are well, you should feel empowered mm -hmm. to seek out other treatment services if you feel like your needs are not being addressed with whoever's in front of you. Where can people find you on social media, Patricia? I'm on Instagram. If anyone wants to email me, I'm also an assistant professor at Northeastern Illinois University and the social work department. Let's increase the pipeline yes. of social work folks. So come to the school. If you are justice driven, if you want an environment that is rich in diversity, uh, we are the school for you. And you can reach me at paguado, A-G-U-A-D-O at N-E-I-U dot E-D-U. Dr. Aguado, it's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Better Off Balanced. Anna, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I, I feel like a kindred spirit. Right? Likewise. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Likewise. Take care. Bye-bye. Take it from me. Taking care of yourself mentally is just as important as taking care of yourself physically. Do not believe for a second that you're failing just because you need someone to talk to. Latinx or not, we are all in this together. And that's going to do it for this episode of Better Off Balanced. Jason Colon is the executive producer. Chip Brewster helped us in the studio. Special thanks to Rick Strasser for referring us to Somos Loud. I'm Ana Belaval. Please subscribe to our show and tell a friend about it. Mm -hmm.